0: This is Chip from Durham,
1: Eric in Edmonton, and
0: Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 19, The Quality of Mercy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, your periodic review of every episode of Babylon 5 in order. Which means it's going to be a very, very long time until we're done. But if you've been paying attention, we're very close to the end of the first season. And I'm I'm a little shocked about that.
2: I know. I thought about that this today when I was uh getting ready. I was like, oh my goodness, we only have three episodes left
0: after this. Whoa. How'd yeah, that happen? We're we're on the verge of redacted. And I can't wait <laughs> until we get to redacted. And
1: <laughs> it's going to be so much more fun to uh, tumble all the I- redacted images.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah Shannon was uh, showing me all of the cool things that she really wanted to reblog and just can't yet.
2: <laughs> Bless your heart for her having that restraint.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we had an interesting interaction on Twitter uh, a day or two ago. Um, our mutual friend uh, from the Incomparable podcast, Glenn Fleischman was um, exchanging tweets with us, and he complimented Shannon. Shannon, you were on Random Trek recently, uh, Uh talking about that.
1: Yeah, it uh, dropped just this week, Mm -hmm. talking about the episode Inheritance from The Next Generation.
0: And Glenn complimented you on giving him the first cogent reason for watching Babylon 5. After about 21 years, it's about bloody time, Glenn, if you're listening. (laughs)
1: Well, he wouldn't be listening yet.
0: Well, this is true. Uh, what was that? What was that cogent reasoning?
1: The fact that unlike most of the Star Trek universe, which was started and stayed very episodic through a good deal of its series, where you could drop in, watch an episode, drop back out, usually no big thing, with Babylon Five, you have to make a commitment to get the full benefit. The five year arc is a five year arc.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a marriage. It is. It's a marriage. And and so you can think of the audio guide to Babylon 5 as marriage counseling. I like it. Yeah. we're, We're teaching you the virtues of patience, dear listener. And while I'm babbling on and on about Babylon 5, I guess we should talk about the quality of mercy, which before we get into the synopses, I just have to jump into this one thing because this is the geekiest, coolest thing about the quality of mercy uh, whether or not you like this episode or not.
1: I'm looking at you, Neil Perryman. It's June.
0: <laughs> Hi, Neil. It's June Lockhart and Bill Mooney together again. Mm hmm. Straczynski
1: had the restraint not to put them in any scenes together.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. So if you didn't recognize what I was excitedly humming because, well, I can't carry a tune to save my life, that was the Lost in Space theme. And they were compatriots in the 60s on that uh, well-remembered, not necessarily beloved TV show. (laughs) But we'll get into that. Uh, First of all, if this is, for some reason, your first episode of Babylon 5, here's what you need to know. Babylon 5 is a UN in space with many races attempting to advance themselves. Among them are the status-loving Empire in Decline, the peacock-haired Centauri, and the Zen mystics with bony headcrests, the Minbari. The station is also home to a significant underclass. It's a port of call, home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. And that's really all you need to know going in because this is a standalone episode pretty much. Just you like that subtle little... Uh...
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm giggling over here. I was just trying not to do it directly into the mic.
0: Ah, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so, the quality of mercy. Here's what happens. Centauri Ambassador Londo Malari is being pressured by the folks back home to make better headway in building relations with the other governments. So he decides to start by taking the naive Minbari aide Lanier under his wing mainly by taking him to the seedier side of B5 and hopefully scam a few drinks. When he discovers Lanier's a probability protege, he steers them to a poker table, where we discover a previously unknown anatomical fact about the Centauri. More about this later. And we also learn that Lanier is awesome in a barroom brawl. Lanier equals Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse, I'm just saying. (laughs) Yes! That's the B-plot. The A plot is actually two intersecting plots, as station medical officer Franklin investigates a new clinic in Down Below, where a disgraced and dying former doctor, Laura Rosen, is healing the lurkers with what he thinks is quackery technology, but turns out to be an alien capital punishment device that sucks the life out of one person and heals another. Coincidentally, a serial killer has just been sentenced to having his mind wiped. He breaks free but is injured and makes it to Dr. Rosen's clinic. He threatens her, her daughter, and Dr. Franklin, and Dr. Rosen uses the device to its original purpose in self-defense, ending his life while healing her. The alien device winds up in Franklin's possession while she leaves the station Searching for Redemption. And that is The Quality of Mercy written by J. Michael Straczynski, although he doesn't remember a thing about it. <laughs> he is quoted at The Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5 at com slash lurk. Of all the scripts I've written, the only one that I'm less than absolutely 100% thrilled with is The Quality of Mercy because I wrote it while absolutely sick with the flu and have no memory of even of writing it. As it is, though, I'm about 90% happy with it, particularly the B story with Lando and Lanier, which came out great. What do you think of JMS's assessment, and what do you think of The Quality of Mercy? Let's start with Erica.
2: Well, I think his assessment that he's 100% happy with all of his other scripts is a little bit mind-blowing.
0: <laughs> for the first season. Or was he talking about the whole, whole season? Or either, the...
2: either way, 100% yeah. happy with anything. I, I don't know that I've ever been 100% happy with anything I've ever created ever, but maybe that's just me. As for this one, I quite enjoy this episode. It is very sort of slight and standalone, but it has, I think, a lot of really fun character moments. And it's got June freaking Lockhart, whom I love, so... So I think that script-wise, I think it does exactly what it needs to do. Uh, it doesn't show that he was that he was very sick. So I'm, I, I think maybe he's being a little hard on himself there.
0: What about you, Shannon?
1: Um, I tend to agree with Erica. I think this is a remarkably good episode, a remarkably tight episode, that the way the two sort of stand-by-side A-plots wind up weaving together – works very, very well. And I think it, again, in classic JMS style, it raises a lot of issues about capital punishment and the methods of capital punishment. And again, doesn't really answer them. He shows what the station has to do in its circumstances. They can't just keep locking up prisoners because they'll run out of room. Uh, So they have to find other methods to deal with these people. And like I said, JMS doesn't, doesn't really give us a firm answer. He, he lets the reader go away and talk about it. Again, from uh, midwinter.com lurker, he talks about how back in Soul Hunter and Believers, he got a lot of flack for those being pro-religion, anti-religion, and a lot of discussion. <laughs> this one created a lot of discussion about the surrounding circumstances of capital punishment. And as he said, a good episode should make you talk, should make you think,
2: and maybe start a fight or two. Mm. <laughs> I like the fact that the characters in the story... Nobody got overly preachy, and everybody was really working with the the world the way it is. This is is the world that has been created, and it's not like the characters at this point are out to change it. They're just trying to get along day by day, make it through, and work within the system that they have.
0: Yeah. Although there are a couple of real ideologues in this story, and Mm -hmm. they're sort of on the opposite extremes of the spectrum, and that's Garibaldi and Dr. Rosen. the the wonderful June Lockhart. Yeah, the questions about crime and punishment are a real thing in this episode, and it, it sort of underlies every conversation that happens here. Garibaldi is... Garibaldi's... I don't want to be too topical here because people will be listening to this all the time. But at the time of recording in the U.S., we're going through a lot right now with mistrust of uh, law enforcement and frustration among law enforcement in their communities. Garibaldi strikes me as extremely realistic and believable and credible as a character this time because he's really hard bitten. He wants to see this serial killer character, Carl Muller. Um, he wants to see him spaced. He wants to see him executed. And he makes no bones about it. Where, whereas Dr. Rosen on the complete other side of the spectrum, even though she kills him in self-defense and it's very clear about that and everybody around her agrees with that uh, assessment, she can't accept it. She's a doctor. She's a healer. She took somebody's life. It was necessary, but it wasn't right. And in the middle, in between that, every other character around them seems to be, as Shannon put it, very realistic, very grounded. Franklin doesn't like the death of personality, but he he does his job, you know.
2: I thought that was actually interesting because in the past we've seen Doctor Franklin be very, very idealistic and you know willing to put his career on the line for for what he believes in. And I don't know if he learned a lesson at the end of Believers and and that's why he was a little bit more laid back about this, or if this is just a an issue that's less close to his heart. But I really, really enjoyed that scene, uh, the exchange between Garibaldi and Franklin about, about wiping and you know, Garibaldi saying that he has volunteers lined up twelve deep, and Franklin just says more's the pity. I thought the The acting in that scene was excellent, and they really both brought across what their characters felt about it without being super in your face.
0: Without being super in your face and not going after each other. Um, Yeah. If you look on Twitter, you see anytime people who disagree about any sort of aspect of politics or morality, if they come across each other on Twitter, there's a very strong reflex to yell at each other. Or to deride each other You see the same thing on Doctor Who podcasts um, But um, <laughs> They're professionals, they're grown-ups, They deal with it and they move on and, and I think part of that may be that Franklin sees, you know, that Mind wiping isn't It's not execution, it's the death of personality But there's still, it's not the death Of a human body So maybe that's a reason why he's not as Head up about that as he was about Turning over medical research During war, I don't know uh, Shannon, any thoughts on that? We've been babbling a little bit.
1: <laughs> all I can do is agree with you know pretty much everything that you all said. That all these different opinions were brought forward and discussed, and without saying that anybody's right or wrong. Another aspect of this storyline that I liked was uh, JMS taking the time to really establish more with how telepathy plays into the criminal justice system, now that they have people who can look into someone's mind and instantly see what they did and what they didn't do. Uh, we've already had the establishment of how telepaths are restricted. They, they cannot do unauthorized scans, then the like. And now we get the fact that due process is still in existence, that anything a telepath happens to glimpse while scanning about one matter If they happen to spot something about a second matter, they cannot do anything about it. All Talia could do was hint to Garibaldi that, yes, he was right, his instincts were right. Mueller was a serial killer and had killed a lot of people, but she could give him no details of any kind to back it up.
2: Yeah. When we're talking about just sort of the things we're learning about the world, another thing that I picked up on this time watching it was that MedLab isn't free. And for some reason, I had just assumed that MedLab would be free. And I think that maybe that's just all the years of Star Trek coming into things where everybody (laughs) just has everything. So I I assumed it. So then I hear hear that Dr. Franklin is actually opening this free clinic down below because – not all of the patients that need him can actually get to see him in med lab. So That was just another layer of this reality that was thrown in with a bit of a line and plot that really makes things more real to me. And it's very interesting.
0: So EarthGov's on the American medical model instead of the Canadian or you know, <laughs> <Yep>. National Health <laughs> S- Service in Britain kind of thing. Oh, wow. Not everything is perfect, I guess. And while we're talking about the sort of reality of things, one of my favorite characters in this episode only has a couple of scenes. But Ombuds Wellington is back, played by Jim Norton. And I love that scene when he is just – he he's the kind of judge I would love to – if I ever had to go to a courtroom, I'd love it if he were presiding because – He's, he's almost perfectly fair. He's perfectly impartial. He is dedicated to the letter and spirit of the law. I love that when Garibaldi suggests to Talia that she dig around in Mueller's mind and try to find some other stuff, and Wellington just bites Garibaldi's head off, saying, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. You know, he, if, if we were talking about a spectrum of characters, um, he's right there in the middle where you'd like a judge to be. I really like this character and this performance.
2: Yeah, Stephen actually mentioned that. He said he likes the Judge guy because he's a really good actor. So, thumbs up from the the noob crowd as well. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's we, we're seeing some of the beginnings of the rewards we get for continuing to watch the continuity, the fact that the same actors are brought back to do the same roles whenever possible. Um, mentions of previous things happening, we're starting to get more and more of the references.
0: Yeah, pretty tight continuity with this one. Uh, I was not looking forward to The Quality of Mercy. I did not remember it as being a particularly memorable episode. But what you all said before about how tight it is, how well constructed it is, considering that it came from the mind of a feverish madman. um, (laughs) It's really well done. And one of the surprising things to me about it is how consequential it is and how connected it is to previous episodes. We're following the master list from the Lurker's Guide, which is the original intended airing order when certain things, uh, production snafus or other things like that, may have put the original airings slightly out of order. Delin is not yet back from her visit to the Grey Council in Babylon Squared. And the fact that we're following this master list right now... I like the connection. This is clearly happening as part of time. Talia also talked about her previous experience in scanning a serial killer in Death Walker, And this comes up again. So this is actually a continuity rich episode.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, Stephen, that was another thing that he noticed was anytime these days Talia is on the screen, he, he points like, oh, look, there she is. She's actually doing her job was what he said this time, <laughs> because she was missing for so many episodes. And he was just wondering if he had just She just laughs. Like, no, this is how it works when you have a big ensemble cast. Sometimes people don't get to be on screen all the time. Yeah,
0: And this is a really unusual cast mix.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned that somebody had mentioned the suspicions that perhaps they were filming two episodes at the same time. Because we get so little of Sinclair, who's in almost every scene in like Babylon Squared. I don't know which episode they might have been filming at the same time. But to have very little Sinclair, no Delenn,
2: no Jakar. He hasn't been around for ages, it feels like so. Yeah, that was the very first thing that Steven said. As soon as it ended, he was like, "That was a double banked episode." <laughs> He's <laughs> like, "It wasn't the usual sets." He said, "Sinclair was only in one scene. There's very little with Ivanova and Garibaldi. It was a different director." So I didn't even notice the sets being different. So he said, "Yeah, that m- almost none of it." if any, were in mm-hmm. the, the sort of the normal sets that you see in most episodes. So I was like, wow, I did not catch any of that. But that's the stuff he looks for.
0: Well, you know, this aired or was scheduled to air after Babylon Squared, but it's the production number 117 and Babylon Squared was production number 118. So, you know, that makes a heck of a lot of sense with all of the set redressing that they were doing for Babylon Squared and things like that. It makes a lot of sense that they would have done this if not at the same time They would have done this in such a way as to stay out of each other's way.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Something else I like, continuing with how tight the episode works together, this time around, I notice things I don't think I noticed before. Little clues that hint at things that will happen in the episode. It builds some of the mystery. There's not a whole lot of mystery, and the mysteries don't last very long, but it builds kind of nicely such as seeing Dr. Rosen um, the first time she uses that machine. She's getting up slowly and a little achingly and mentions that she's tired. And that's the first clue that what this machine does is it's pulling away her life energy to contribute to someone else. And I also noticed in the very first scene when Londo is talking to the uh, Centauri senator and hangs up or does the touch screen and closes the call. And he reaches up and he grabs a certain part of his chest, which we now know
0: was actually a crotch grab he,
2: so, he grabs it and says touch this right
1: right and of course we'll find out later in the episode that well
0: exactly what that, he was touching exactly mm-hmm. <sighs> B- before we get to that i would would like to ask you all what you think of the magic technology here an alien healing machine that transfers life energy appropriate plausible
2: I am a huge fan of magic technology. My favoriteist show is one about a guy who travels the universe in a blue box that's bigger on the inside than on the outside. So I
0: do not poo-poo anything like this. It was fine with me. But this is supposed to be a slightly more grounded, slightly more realistic sci-fi universe. Um, mm-hmm. But this- with a
1: lot of aliens that we haven't met yet. Some, you mm-hmm. know, more advanced. There, there have been hints of, like, the Vorlons being more advanced with organic technology. We've had that murmur here and there. So it's not out of bounds for this universe to think that something like this existed, whether it's like our electronic functions. I mean, our cells basically are just uh, electricity running around, that there's a way to harness that and conduct it, especially with the design, the way they had the wires sort of wrapped around uh, the person Mm -hmm. being healed. I was not bothered.
2: You know, I think that I'm all for a more realistic, (laughs) (laughs) down-to-earth, joke there, type of science fiction show. However, I think the amount of hubris involved in thinking that there will never be technology that we don't understand would be ridiculous and would make the show actually more unbelievable. Because if we're talking about a universe where there are lots of races out there that are either older than us or ones that we haven't met, I I think the idea that that we're never going to come across anything that seems magical is ridiculous.
0: I've got a different question for y'all. What did you think of Sinclair in this episode?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he annoyed me. <laughs> he, had, he was only he in one there for scene two he, seconds, maybe three. He had one scene, and he blew it. Yeah, I just, I just thought his his the look on his face, that sort of smile at the end. It just, it looked smug and just out of place and wrong. And yeah, sorry.
1: Well, I kind of bought it. I've- I think Smug was appropriate. I mean, he was letting at least the viewers know, if not the characters know, that he knew ex- he knew damn well they were lying through their teeth. But, you know, because of diplomatic immunity, he really couldn't do anything about it anyway.
2: Yeah, I guess.
0: Well, that was uh, that, that was me asking a pretty facetious question because this is, this is the right. least sinclair episode of them all. So let's instead have a Londo and Lanier check, shall we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What do we think of Peter Jurisic and Bill Moomy as Bonnie and Clyde in this episode?
2: <laughs> I laughed. I laughed the whole time. I, I really just enjoy this. I, I like the odd pairing from time to time. And Lanier just, I find him adorable. He's just like this wide-eyed, innocent wandering around. And then you've got somebody like, you know, lascivious old Londo who takes him to you know, a strip club, club called Dark Star. Oh, my gosh. Which guys, we've been really, to before. I had forgotten that. And... uh or maybe i just hadn't noticed the name before cuz i knew i'd seen the club but yeah i i just it was a, it was a very predictable plot line you you knew where it was going as, as soon as you kind of realized that he had the the math thing but it was still fun i was along for the ride and i really enjoyed the crazy looking little poker chips because they just looked like they would be fun to play with and <laughs> yeah so thumbs up for me
1: yeah uh, it definitely worked for me as well it was very good to have such a light-hearted thread to balance all of the very heavy themes being thrashed out uh, in the main plot. So it had just so many wonderful little little moments that just made you laugh out loud. Londo discovering just at the last second that Mambari shouldn't have alcohol. It's like, oops, let me you know <laughs> take this drink that I just lied flat out and said didn't have any alcohol in it. And their, their timing was very well done for a lot of their interactions. Just when the stripper drops the, the skirt and... Has Lanier just sort of staring wide eyed through that whole interaction? It it worked for me.
0: You know, there's that line in Star Trek about Data having the awe and wonder of a child, and for Bill Mumy to sort of have that facial reaction to a stripper dropping her skirt—that was that was interesting.
2: <laughs> it was it was fun. I, there was a part of me that wondered if I Minbari. Mean, you know, being such a different culture would be titillated by the same things, but apparently they are. So I guess I guess it, it, it worked. And I mean, his performance of it was, was really good and just it wasn't over the top. It wasn't like his jaw was on the floor or anything. He was just sort of entranced. And I enjoyed that.
0: Well, I guess we've come to the elephant in the room or the elephant's trunk, as it were. <laughs> Let's talk about Londo's free willy. <laughs> <laughs> so was that appropriate for how, how that level of humor we didn't get it spelled out exactly what we were dealing with until the end and Lanier took an immediate vow of silence but this is possibly the most extended dick joke in televised science fiction history and you never knew it until the end
2: <laughs> personally i loved it and i mean that but- I guess my, my tolerance for that sort of thing is pretty high. So there's there was really no chance of anything remotely offending me with it. So I just thought it was funny. I like the idea that this is a fully constructed universe. These characters... Are real characters. They have bits and bobs just like everybody else. And I like the idea that JMS was not afraid to to show a little bit of that and to let us in on just another little piece of the Centauri like I guess culture is kind of the wrong word, but it certainly informs their culture. Look at their gods. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was just more pretty wrapping they were putting around this uh this neat this neat world that we've created. It's it's just bigger and better for it.
1: Yeah, same here. I think my tolerance for potty humor is somewhat lower, but this was a really well-done joke. Um, (laughs) You just, from beginning to end, with the prosthetic, you couldn't quite tell, okay, the Centauri have this funny tentacle. I think the very first time I saw this, the first time around... I thought that he had some kind of animal that it that had been trained. The very first time I saw it,
0: until it was or, a knockalene feeder under the table.
1: Yeah, but until the end of the episode <laughs> right. when when they revealed, um, I like that it ties in that JMS already had way back in the Parliament of Dreams the statue of the goddess, and now we learn that she's a hermaphrodite and has both the tentacles and presumably the slots. I think JMS de- described it on the Lurker's Guide that the woman has, that they all match up. So it worked
2: for me as well.
0: That whip crack sound.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll give you that was a, maybe a little over the top, but it did make me laugh.
0: <laughs> you know, the only quibble I had with that whole thing was uh, that really should have been a heavier pitcher of water prop because <laughs> it should have gone over immediately. That said, Lando's discomfort and his expression as... <laughs> Peter is miming, trying to pull something out from under the increasingly cold um, pitcher and all that <laughs> stuff. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's so good, so comical. And then I love the contrast when everything goes to hell. The brawl is about to begin. All of a sudden, Lanier does look like a badass. He, mm-hmm. he Bill Mooney's expression is serious. I couldn't tell how much of uh what was going on was uh stunt doubling um I figure a fair bit was, but he looked formidable, he looked naive and he looked for- but he looked formidable and it wasn't comedy formidable like uh the um the stereotypical ninety eight pound weakling who took judo
2: yeah, I bought it. I thought this episode is full of great performances and and this was one of them.
0: Uh, let me ask then about Dr. Stephen Franklin, then. Let's uh, about the performance and the character there. Uh, one thing that I really liked is that, and this is as much the script as the performance, we get a resolution to the is Dr. Rosen a quack or not? How's Stephen going to deal with her? We get that midway through the episode with no protracted drama, no hemming and hawing. It's it's professionalism and finality. But uh, what did you two think of the Franklin-Dr. Rosen uh, thread?
1: It worked for me overall. I think we got to see more of uh, who Stephen is, who Stephen tends to be, and maybe with a little less of heavy-handedness, such as in Believers, but still he is looking to help as many people as possible. So, you know, he's got the clinic, he doesn't apologize Twin when Ivanova comes down and, and points out that, you know, th- that he really shouldn't be doing this. And she winds up agreeing with him. I also liked how the reason he's investigating is to make sure that people are not being harmed by this, this medicine woman that he's been hearing about. And once again, we see a bit of his um, eagerness to learn more about technology, about alien technology. He he was curious about the machine. He's fascinated. And then, of course, the doctor tries to strike her deal with him to say, you know, if if something happens and, and I die too soon, you take the machine, which could be a way to seal the deal to set up their agreement.
2: I had forgotten what happened in this episode, and I was thinking that she was going to die by the end because I I knew that he ended up with with the machine for some reason, but I I didn't remember how it happened. So I was expecting her to be dead at the end, and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that she didn't. Uh, I think what I liked the best about it was just watching the arc between them. I like seeing characters that I like, learning that they are in the wrong, and then you know, kind of doing the right thing and not being pissy about it. So it was, it was nice for me to see that once he realized that, that he had had it all wrong about her being a quack, that he agreed with what she was doing to a certain extent. And, and then, ugh, the scene where he calls her doctor as he's leaving the room. It's such a quiet little moment, but it was beautiful. And June Lockhart's reaction was just it, it brought tears to my eyes? The fact that you know she had lost her license, I guess you'd call it, as a doctor and hadn't been one for so long, and, and this very you know prominent physician then refers to her that way, just almost offhandedly, and it it was wonderful.
1: I think it shows that Stephen has learned from his previous experiences. Uh, the Stephen in Believers would have probably been shouting and throwing a tantrum at some point. <laughs> and this Stephen yeah. doesn't. So I think, you know, we see a bit of progression. He's learning, he's growing.
0: Yeah, a little less hubris. A little less. Yep. But he's, you know, mm-hmm. it, this is an opportunity. Um and I I think we see a little bit of that in him, you know, that we'll we'll learn more about. I'll learn more about this technology and we'll be able to accomplish something. But I I like the way that he quickly recognizes Dr. Rosen as Part of the same process that he's going through in bending the rules, setting up free clinics, helping the population in down below live more healthily. And I also like the way that he uh, recruited uh, Susan Ivanova into this. We've seen that she's not averse to bending the rules a little bit as long as she's in control. Mm -hmm. And once she calls Stephen onto the carpet for not keeping her informed, she helps out. And that's just lovely. I like this episode quite a bit, and I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much. This is almost a good, with the exception of the fact that our regular cast leaders are absent from much of this, this is almost an episode that I'd recommend handing to somebody who's new to Babylon 5. What do you two think?
1: I think that's got potential, because it does give a lot of the framework of more focused on the inner workings of the station than the grand scheme of the universe ar- around it. But I think that can work.
2: I'm less certain, because I, I do think that it's it's not saddled with a whole lot of baggage, so that it definitely has that going for it. So if somebody wants to watch something from in the middle, I think this is probably a good bet. But I wonder if, without knowing a little bit more about the backgrounds of the characters, if it might lose a little something, if you don't know that Lanier is, is so... Innocent and naive. I mean, I guess you figure it out pretty quick. But I just, I wonder how much my knowledge of these characters up till now is informing how much I enjoy watching them interact with each other in this story.
0: That, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, it's a question that I'd like to ask our listeners. Uh, we have uh, conversation threads for every episode as we record at our website at b 5 audioguidecom You can also talk to us on Twitter at b5audioguide. And we're on Tumblr. Just look for B5 Audio Guide. God, I love this kind of consistency. I wish my Doctor (laughs) Who podcast was this consistent. Um, And we're on the verge of going through the jump gate and talking about spoilery things. So if you don't want to know what's going to happen in future episodes of Babylon 5 and how this episode signposts some of those things, it's about time for you to leave. But first... Here's what's happening in our next episode, episode 20. We're, again, following the master list at uh, Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5, and that means that our next episode is T-K-O. Not T-E-E-K-A-Y-O-H. It's the initials T-K-O, and that's our next episode. So uh, we look forward to joining you uh, in two weeks or whenever it is that you get around to watching the next episode. And thank you for listening. Stick around if you'd like to go through the jump gate with us. And welcome back. And one of the reasons that I wasn't looking forward to Quality of Mercy so much is that I'd forgotten how rich this is for future (laughs) implications for future episodes. What do you two think?
1: They're everywhere from the foreshadowing of Dr. Rosen losing her license because she got addicted to stems, which, you know, two Mm -hmm. seasons down the road happens to Stephen, to the parallels with uh, passing through Gethsemane when we learn more about the mind wipe issues and when it can go wrong. It's everywhere.
0: My God, it's full of hints. (laughs) Erica, what do you think about this one in terms of the the broader tapestry?
2: You know, I think that all of these little elements are sprinkled in there so judiciously that it's just, it's perfect. It's it's weaved in so that none of them are hitting you over the head. Uh, I think if you're watching this for the first time, you probably aren't noticing any of this stuff. Hopefully, you're taking it in so that you'll remember it when we get to the future episodes. But I mean, for me, even, I was just, this is the the first time that I kind of I tried to make myself take fewer notes and focus on just watching and enjoying the story more because i've I've found lately that i've I've gotten to the point where I'm trying to get everything down so much and then I kind of miss some of the joy. so, and in doing that since i wasn't looking so closely for things to write down i, I missed a, a number of those things so like i did definitely catch the uh, you know the fact that uh, dr rosen was taking stims and that Stephen was basically looking into his future across the table in that scene so there were there were a few items like that that popped out at me but for the most part it was all just like it seemed like it was part of this rich tapestry that fits together so well that it didn't even spring to mind Uh, as something that I should be looking out for in the future.
0: Now, the alien healing machine shows up relatively quickly because when uh, Garibaldi is stuck in a coma after having been shot in the back, our new commander, our new captain, mind you, and Dr. Franklin are going to take turns using that thing, trying to help him come out of it. And then it goes away for a little while. Do you think that this episode established the rules adequately for this very important piece of technology that was going to have such an impact three seasons down the road?
2: I think it did. I just I wonder if this was a trapdoor that he was building in at this point, or if it was just a neat piece of technology he invented when he had a fever that he hung on to <laughs> and then
0: decided to resurrect later when it seemed like it was helpful. There is on the Lurker's Guide a reference that I think. That he maybe this is the fever talking as well, but he describes the alien healing device as not being able to repair physical damage. That rule gets completely thrown out the window when it comes to Marcus and Ivanova. Um, so I thought that was I, I thought that was interesting. I think that's a little bit of narrative flexibility involved that we'll Did get. Did they into. say
2: that? Did they and did anybody actually say that on screen or was that just something that exactly. he, that he had decided? He, it's
0: just something that he said online. So you okay. get to you get to you get to hand wave it away uh, very easily if you don't actually say it.
2: Yeah, well I don't think you even need to hand wave it away. I think it yeah. just doesn't exist in the first place.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to hand wave it to all of the obsessed fanboys and fangirls who were on <laughs> RecArts SFTV, Babylon 5 moderated back in the day, but yeah. fair enough.
1: Oh, one more thing about the machine. I do like the fact that similar to Epsilon 3, it's one of these Chekhov's guns that, you know, it's put out there, but then it's only fired very judiciously. You know, it's another one of those things that could have become an answer, you know, every five or six episodes. And, you know, JMS again shows great restraint in only using it when it fits.
0: Yeah. Because, well, and there's a better rule in place for this thing than there was for Epsilon 3. If you use it on one person, it's going to hurt another person. So there's sort of a built-in. Come to think of it, that reminds me of Death Walker a little bit. And we had that episode where um, eternal life could only come with uh, by killing yeah. somebody else. Interesting. Interesting parallel.
1: I think it shows part of JMS trying to be very judicious and not have any magic wands lying about. Nothing happens without consequences.
0: Hmm. Lanier as a fighter, we will see that again and again, culminating in ranger training in season five. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Other things will come out of nowhere from Lanier, but... uh, um, (laughs) But not that. But not that. But not that. Talia, uh, in her scene with uh, Garibaldi in the Zen garden, when she talks about what she saw in muller's mind and says that there are horrible things inside us she says that yes there are horrible things inside us talia
2: right i didn't even i didn't even put that one together oh poor
0: talia yeah and um and another thing uh that i noticed is and this is subtle but again the life of a telepath is not a good one as nice and practical as ombuds wellington is Tolly is a tool. She's got to do this thing, And she talks about how this is a really sucky job that telepaths don't want, you know? As good as it is that there are legal constraints on how telepathic abilities may be used, the telepaths are certainly being used, uh, and we'll see that we'll see that work itself out in seasons four and five. And I also think it's interesting to think about all these checks and balances. And how when governmental changes come in season three, and certainly with Bester and all of them now, there, there's one set of rules for the ombuds, and there's another set of rules for the cop, And we'll see that transition mm-hmm. coming.
2: And as far as Talia goes, I mean, also the, the whole death of personality, mind wiping, and then implanting another personality mm-hmm. thing is is another establishment of the way things can work for what happens to her down the road. Uh, I mean, they're not establishing that it can be implanted from the inside, but
0: it, it's still sort of the same type of idea. There was one other sign important in this episode that was on the top tip of my tongue, but I can't remember what it was. Either of you think of anything else?
1: I'm trying to remember where it happened. I wrote down in my notes, um, quoting somebody, and it may have been the serial killer, jump out of the shadows and bite you. Mm-hmm. And just another reference to shadows. It, you know, quite possibly was nothing, but mm-hmm. uh, that, that grabbed me enough to, to write it down.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I thought he was excellent. I mean, he just creeped me out to, uh, I think, just the right degree.
0: Were there any bad actors with significant lines in this episode? I don't, I don't think so. so. Even the the daughter Janice was quite good, so I, and the, home run. Uh,
1: the poker buddies were the the biggest possibility for for being <laughs> hammy little extras, but even they did a pretty good job.
0: And so, that yeah. first uh, patient of Doctor Rosen's, who played it as damaged or somehow somehow a little off, that could have been bad. That could have been. I'm sorry. Uh, that could have been <laughs> Jinxo level bad. Um,
2: and then talking about her patients, we actually had Constance Zimmer. I don't know if you guys recognized her as the uh, second patient, the young girl with the dark hair. Constance Zimmer, who went on to be in Entourage and House of Cards and oh. a, a whole bunch of other stuff, was nominated for a SAG Award or something. Nifty. Yeah, so.
1: Very yep. nifty. There's a lot of continuity with characters. Uh, Lou Welch shows up again briefly, um, mm-hmm. just long enough to, you know, get distract shot. Garibaldi and <laughs> yeah. let Muller get, <laughs> let, let get away. We already mentioned that Ombudsman Wellington is back, and uh, interestingly enough, we're going to see that actor again under a lot of heavy alien makeup. Jim Norton also plays Dr. Lazarin in Confessions and Lamentations, and um, somewhere down the line, he's also a Narn.
0: But we have to give props to our pre-credits sequence with the debut of the one, the only, Damien London. Who is Damien London, you may ask? <laughs> Damien London is the future regent of the Centauri Empire. And. Mm-hmm. And he will never
1: stop twittering.
0: He will never stop. Tw- he is wonderful. <laughs> I love that guy. He's nuts. <laughs> did you catch that that was him, Erica? I did.
2: And I, I like kind of. Sat up a little bit. And then I tried to play it down because I didn't want to <laughs> you know, make a big deal like that. I recognize somebody who's just a complete side character there because I know that annoys Steven when he has clues.
0: Yeah. In two years, he'll be back and he'll be talking about pastels. You
2: know, at this point, he's really starting to get into this more. It's very exciting for me. But I fear at some point he's he's going to decide that he needs to just watch it faster so that he will no longer <laughs> be at our pace, which I would be fine with because I'm, I live in constant terror that he is going to be spoiled by somebody either on Twitter or, you know, we'll go to a Doctor Who convention and there's a lot of crossover between Doctor Who and Babylon Five fans and somebody will just say something and, you know, Sinclair is Valen. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> I do have to ask since you since you bring Stephen up I was going to let go uh, the issue of Londo's appendage but how did Stephen react and when did he figure it out <laughs>
2: Um, I don't think he completely figured it out until the very end. So it wasn't like he suspected. He did at the beginning when Londo, you know, said, touch this and grabbed himself. He did just say jokingly, is that where their penises are? And then (laughs) at the end of the episode, he had forgotten that he had even said that. So I pointed it out when the the show was over. I said, yes, you were exactly right. That is where their penises are. And he just he he had forgotten that he had noticed that. And he was like, oh, so I think he really enjoyed what Shannon had, had mentioned, that this was an episode that really built up. Up, that there was a, a through line to it and, and he liked the fact that it fit together the beginning to the end so that's why i think that he's really going to like so much more of this series because there are so many things that fit together from beginning to end it's just that there's like two years in between instead of 20 minutes
0: yeah <sighs> <sighs> great episode great episode to talk about and i'm always happy when an episode turns out to be better than it was in my memory
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, same here. I Honestly, I didn't remember anything that happened in like just by the title. And then when I saw June Lockhart's name, I was like, okay, it was this one. That'll be fine. And then I ended up liking it even more than I expected.
1: Yeah, same here. I, it was an episode that I had liked before, but now watching with a closer eye and paying closer attention and noticing again, just all of the little things that build up um, and create so many of the strengths of this show, uh, the tight writing, the hints within the episode that get resolved at the end, the hints that get scattered around for the rest of the um, for the rest of the show. Uh, and even we get more examples. I meant to say this before the spoiler gate, more examples of diversity. JMS mentioned originally writing Dr. Rosen as a man and then realizing, you know what? No, this could be a woman. So let's you know open up the casting a little bit further. And that's how they landed June Lockhart. Because that, that is a character that could have been a man or a woman. Either way, it works. And I also noticed with the serial killer, as his victims kept crowding around Talia, there were a bunch of aliens in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> Not just humans. So I thought that was really cool as well, that, you know, the serial killer, his who however he chooses the voices for his chorus, you know, he was looking at everybody.
0: I think it's awesome that our serial killers uh, respect diversity, don't you? <laughs>
2: equal opportunity murder
0: <laughs> and on that bombshell erica in my hand i am holding a baton that i am offering to you through the ether and you get to talk about tko you get to moderate tko we get to enter the muay next time
2: can i call in sick
0: <laughs> i almost <laughs> called in sick for this one but i i you
2: were legitimately sick i just want to fake <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will just say that I am not particularly looking forward to this episode. I think it may be my least favorite episode of Babylon 5 ever.
1: It, it's not great. It is not great,
0: but you know, I'm muddled pre- through it. I am prepared to have the exact same reaction that I had to Quality of Mercy. I am prepared to be unexpectedly delighted.
2: What well, good. I hope that works out for you, Chip.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be next time on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Thank you all so much for listening and for now. This is Chip and Durham,
1: Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon and Durham.
0: We'll catch you again next time. Bye-bye.